ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another episode of the Politics Band Podcast. This podcast is going to be for December 17th, 2018. I hope everybody is having a great holiday season. And in case I don't talk to you beforehand, I want to wish all of you a very Merry Christmas. So today I've got some housekeeping to do with respect to a few things that have been going on involving the president, as well as the discussion around the Russian collusion investigation with the Bob Mueller special counsel. There's been a lot of focus now on campaign finance violations as opposed to Russian collusion, which I think really illustrates kind of just how far this particular investigation has fallen. So today I wanted to address some facts about the campaign finance violations that you might not know, or you might find this whole situation to be very confusing because there are a lot of moving pieces And in fact, campaign finance law is incredibly nondescript and it's very complicated. It's one of those things that if you happen to run as a candidate, either for federal office or even maybe for state office, it can really land you in a lot of problems. I can give you a very quick fact that I happen to see. The FEC actually found a thousand errors with respect to the Trump campaign filings, some of which were campaign finance law violations in the process of running their campaign. And I could almost guarantee you that the vast majority of these were done without any real idea as to what actually needed to be done or what was actually done incorrectly. The law just has all sorts of special interest areas that have been carved out inside of it. And of course, there's this continued notion that you can try and get the money out of politics and money out of campaigning. And a lot of it really just isn't true. At the end of the day, these laws just end up being more of an, an, an almost ensnaring people who make mistakes, but otherwise are not attempting to do anything malicious. So it's really important that I think we discuss some of the particulars about these campaign finance law violations that you're seeing parroted all over the internet and all over the news media. The first thing that I, again, want to highlight is is this. The Bob Mueller special counsel investigation started as a counterintelligence investigation. The purpose of that investigation was to determine whether or not the president had colluded with Russia to influence the outcome of the election in 2016. So we have now moved, as you can see, the Democrats are no longer talking about Russian collusion. If they, I mean, they are in some pockets, but otherwise it's not a topic that's being readily discussed in the media and on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, anywhere you're seeing people commenting. And there's a very good reason for that. I have to give a hat tip to Dan Bongino. And first of all, if you don't listen to Bongino's podcast, you should definitely go and listen to it. Bongino has a best-selling book that has laid out all of the aspects about the spy scandal in terms of the Democrat Party and the Obama administration utilizing America's spy apparatus to essentially spy on an opposition candidate for the purpose of obtaining dirt to influence the election. Bongino has been on top of a lot of these different aspects of the special counsel investigation. He's able to break everything down in a way that is understandable by those of us who have never had a career in law enforcement or don't have any background in law. It's fantastic. And some of this information I've gotten from him, the Russian collusion investigation is starting to wind down. And in fact, you've, you probably have taken notice that now the Mueller campaign is actually discussing investigating a middle Eastern connection. The entire investigation is desperate. And I just want to, again, take another opportunity to reassure all of you out there. It is very, very unlikely at this stage of the game 
that the that Robert Mueller or anybody working for him are going to discover any kind of criminal actions on behalf of the president with respect to Russian collusion or collusion of any kind with respect to influencing the election in 2016. If they were going to find it, they would have found it by now. It would have been leaked to the press, especially before the November elections in hopes of essentially uh, dispiriting all of the Republican voters from turning out or potentially even trying to convince Republican voters to vote Democrats. So the opportunity to influence the American people at the sort of at its zenith was during the November election and that time has passed. So at this point, the next sort of goal for Bob Mueller is, of course, to continue to deflect attention away from the actual real scandal, which was the spying on President Trump and his campaign. So that, you know, the idea is to keep all the focus on Trump and don't allow any attention to be paid to any of the other real criminal violations that took place during the campaign as a way of being the cleanup man. And of course, the other option is, or the other goal perhaps, is to continue to delay and disrupt this administration to the greatest possible extent. It's very clear that Bob Mueller does not like Trump whatsoever. And you can see that there definitely is a very personal aspect to this investigation. If Bob Mueller was a true professional, this investigation would have been wrapped up months ago and we would all be moving on with our lives. So it's important to understand that they don't have anything with respect to Russian collusion. One thing that Bongino pointed out in his one of his recent podcasts is when you look at Cohen, Manafort, uh, Corsi, and also with respect to uh, General Michael Flynn, at the very, very least with respect to criminal charges, if they had any actual evidence of criminal wrongdoing, they would have charged somebody with conspiracy at the minimum. There's been no conspiracy charge. There's been nothing except these process crimes of lying to federal investigators. Now, there are conservatives running around wringing their hands saying, oh, we should be very concerned about these process crimes. I can't believe that conservatives are dismissing the process crimes committed by members of the president's inner circle or his past associates. Lying to federal investigators, it's more of the specifics of that crime, I think, than anything else. Lying to federal investigators is not something that is very difficult to trap people into. In the case of General Michael Flynn, as I mentioned in my previous podcast when I talked a little bit about Flynn, which unfortunately did not, I don't think actually made it onto the internet. So if you're hearing this, you might be a little confused what I'm talking about. Something to know about General Flynn's interview is when the FBI went to interview him, we now know that then at the time, Director James Comey actually circumvented typical protocols with respect to interviewing members of the president's staff or his cabinet. Normally, any interviews with respect to the FBI would be handled by White House counsel. In this case, James Comey just sent these FBI agents to the White House, which was not standard protocol. And James Comey has already publicly admitted that essentially, in this case, how he framed it was like this, that this administration was and it was a less organized administration, but basically he admitted that if the administration had known what they were doing, he could have never have gotten away with this. So he was playing off the fact that the Trump administration was new, that nobody had an idea of how things worked, what the protocols were in Washington. And Comey took advantage of that to basically entrap Michael Flynn in a perjury situation. We also know that the agents now, 
basically um, dissuaded General Michael Flynn from having counsel present. They did not say that he needed to have a lawyer, and they actually discouraged him from having an attorney. They never told him that his statements could actually be considered perjury as they're supposed to do. They would usually warn you that, hey, if you make false statements in this interview, you could be brought upon charges. That never happened. Now, what does that have to do with anything? In this case, we understand that there would have been a conspiracy charge. There would have been a conspiracy charge, and these individuals absolutely, at the very least, would have been charged with a conspiracy to commit X if they had evidence that a crime had been committed by somebody higher up the chain. So now Bob Mueller's, all of his star cast, Flynn, Corsi, who's actually not only refusing to cop a plea, but he's actually going to be suing, if he hasn't already, uh, suing the Bob Mueller special counsel investigation. Uh, Manafort and Cohen have also already copped pleas and have had their sentencing memorandums filed. They're done. They're done. Because at this point, if Manafort had anything new to and to gather from them, he would not have submitted a sentencing memorandum. As Bongino explained in one of his podcasts recently, that the basically when you become a sort of a government asset in the form of now you're basically spilling the beans about all the people, all your co-conspirators, you never actually, there's no sentencing that takes place because the defendant is all the, first of all, the defendant has to plead guilty to all charges and there's no promises of any uh, reduced amounts of jail time. The kind of thing that you see in, in, you know, in crime shows where people demand immunity and they demand deals in exchange for their testimony. That doesn't happen. That kind of stuff doesn't happen in real life. You have to agree to all the charges without any deals because there, you constantly have to have that sort of Damocles over your head so that if you ever lie or if you decide to back out or you don't fully cooperate, you're going to get hammered with the full extent of your charges. And that keeps you sort of under that constant stress. So these guys are all done. They're all done. There's no information that they can provide the special counsel about the Russian investigation, because if they had stuff to say, they would still be under investigation and there would have been no sentencing memorandum filed with any of the, uh, with respect to any of these defendants. So now that aspect is done. There's no one left. These are the star witnesses. These are the people who are supposed to have all the information on the president, all the dirt. So what do we have left now? Well, what we have now are campaign finance law violations. Now, this is the new hotness. So Democrats have moved from, you know, at, at its peak that the president was treasonous, that he's been colluding with Russia, that he influenced the American election and that he's the worst criminal president we've ever had. And now we're talking about campaign finance law violations. That's the new hotness. So what exactly is the campaign finance law violation and what entails with it? And of course, one thing that I have seen a lot on Twitter is this notion that now the, fre- the president has been implicated in multiple felonies. So it sounds very serious. I want to talk to you today a bit about some other uh, campaign finance law violations, which for the most part have gone not so much unpunished, but most certainly gone without jail time. And that's something to keep in mind. Very, very rarely. And in fact, I'm not aware of any, any other examples other than Dinesh D'Souza. Am I aware of instances in which someone actually went to prison for a campaign finance law violation? 
normally the FEC just fines people. So if you commit a campaign finance law violation, you get fined. You know, you, they investigate, they make a conclusion, and then they fine you and you have to pay the fine. But no one goes to prison. I mean, and so, in fact, the Clinton, both the Clinton campaign and the Obama campaign have engaged in campaign finance law violations of a significantly higher dollar amount than what is being quoted here with the president. And they have, they were, they, well, at least the Obama administration has been fined. To my knowledge of the, the actual investigation with respect to Hillary Clinton has gone nowhere. Uh, No one's been punished. No one's been fined. Um, No one has seen the inside of a jail cell, the least of which has been Hillary Clinton herself. So I want to give you guys some context by which you can sort of gauge what's taking place and see how the level of of hysteria that is taking place around the president is significantly overblown. And once again, it is another instance of the Democrats being completely hypocritical in their approach to this president compared to past presidents. There is one thing that I want to say before we get started with a lot of today's articles and information. And I want to talk about, well, I want to talk about what, what is the purpose that president Trump serves? Because we're, you know, I, some conservatives out there kind of feel like these people like me are making a lot of excuses that we're sort of excusing this behavior. I need to be upfront with my own perspective of president Trump, but I believe that this is a perspective that is shared by a lot of people. So that's why I want to share it with you today. I don't particularly care for president Trump as a person. I don't agree with, uh, I don't agree with cheating on your wife. I think that adultery is a terrible, terrible thing. If a man cannot keep his commitments to his wife, I begin to question whether or not he can keep commitments to anyone else. If you can't, at the very least, honor the promise that you made to your wife to be faithful to her and her alone, then everyone else is, well, I mean, everyone else is vastly inferior to, with respect to a man's wife in terms of the, the hierarchy of importance in one's life, at least in my opinion. So the fact that he has engaged in adulterous behavior in and of itself tells me this is not a man of sound character. I don't necessarily find him to be particularly well-spoken, although he has built quite a mighty real estate empire and he's made a billion dollars, which is most certainly not something that I can claim any success towards. So the fact that he's managed to make a boatload of money tells me that he must know how to do something correctly. So with that in mind, it's important to understand that, you know, the president is, he's an imperfect person and he's not somebody that I particularly agree with in terms of his character and some of his mannerisms and how he acts. I think he's a bully. Um, and I don't think that he's a conservative at all. I think he does conservative things, but I disagree strongly on the excessive spending that has been taking place in Washington. I disagree tremendously with his invoking of tariffs. I think tariffs are a destructive force. And I feel like a lot of conservatives as opposed to speaking out against these things, they make this assumption that Trump is playing some kind of six dimensional underwater chess. And he's just so smart and he's just so far ahead of his opponents that he's thinking 20, 30 moves. He's already got the game won, and they're still trying to move one or two guys at the beginning of the game. I really don't think that's the case. Ladies and gentlemen, after, after 15 years of 
studying the media and studying politics, I really think that Washington politicians are some of the dumbest people that we have in the United States. And that goes even for the good ones. I don't think these people are of any real sound intelligence. I think that if they really were capable of doing things that were more grand or that could make them more money or make a bigger difference in the world, I think they would have found it elsewhere. I think politics is just a, an opportunistic kind of place where people can get into it. And the, as long as you've got a decent stack of cash and you're a well-spoken individual and most of your skeletons are pretty well hidden away, you can make it. And if you get in, you're in for life. That's the big thing is it's all career oriented now. So I don't necessarily even believe that the president is this super, super smart individual. And he's just so smart that we can't even possibly comprehend what he's doing. He's an average guy, just like the rest of us. That being said, President Trump's presence as a, as, as the leader of our nation is very specific. I voted for Trump. And the reason why I voted for Trump is because we needed somebody in the white house who was going to fight back. And he's a consequence of our political atmosphere. He's not the cause of it. He is the consequence of it. There's two different things that were going on at the same time that both prompted me to pull the lever for Trump. Number one, of course, the Democrats being who they are, being the radical progressives, which is nothing more than, you know, a kissing cousin of communism. The Democrats engaging in all of their reckless behavior and Republicans have tried to run moderate candidates. We have tried to run John McCain. We have tried to run Mitt Romney, both of which had strong ties to the left, were, were supportive of leftist policies, and they both lost. And the Democrats absolutely annihilated them in the media. I remember all of the media coverage of John McCain talking about how he was old, how he was senile, how he could die in office, how he was frail. And then all the coverage of Mitt Romney about how he was dumb and he was unintelligent and he was weird because he didn't drink because he's Mormon. And of course, Mormonism was also another problem that people had. They trashed these men and they lost. They lost bad. George Bush 43 also only won by the skin of his teeth in 2000, where he was he won by the Electoral College, but obviously did not win the popular vote, which the popular vote is irrelevant but it sets up kind of how close he was to losing. And if it wasn't for a lot of the national security issues that came about during his presidency, he would have, he may have lost in 2004 against John Kerry, but even George Bush, he was not, he's not a conservative. That's where we got our compassionate conservatism. But up until that point, George Bush was the largest profligate spender in United States history. We had, you know, compassionate conservatism, which is not conservatism. It, so, I mean, there were all these aspects where George Bush was not a conservative either. He did some conservative things, but he wasn't a conservative. So the bottom line is, those of us who are in the conservative movement or identify with that particular ideology and philosophy, we weren't seeing it reflected in Washington. All of our leaders were not acting conservative. And then when we played the game of supporting these moderate candidates as a way of trying to bring some Democrats into the fold and, and try to produce a more coherent message that appealed to more people and ultimately brought more people into the big tent. We were beaten tremendously every single time. 
and the Democrats were relentless in their opposition. Absolutely relentless. They said everything they possibly could. They did everything they possibly could to win. And we are losing time and time again. So here we are. We're playing by the rules. And by the rules, I mean, we're trying to compete in the arena of ideas. We're, we're, we're nominating candidates who are very reasonable in their approaches and in their ideology. And they're being destroyed. So we had to stop. We had to do something different. And in this case, I mean, Trump was not my pick during the actual Republican uh, primaries, but ultimately I supported him for president because it became apparent to me that we needed a bully. We needed our own bully in the White House. You may or may not be aware of the fact, but a lot of Democrat groups don't get along with each other. There's a lot of Democrat groups like the environmentalists and the, you know, the black community and the the LGBT QWERTY community and, and all these different communities, they, they don't, they don't get along very well, but when they, but what they always coalesce every two to four years, because they all hate Democrats more than they are. They all, I'm sorry. They all hate Republicans more than they hate each other. And we needed our own force. We needed our own bully that could stand up against this coalesced Democrat party who would take the fight to them who would be relentless in making sure that everything was responded to because during the Bush administration uh, from, you know, 2000 to 2008 Republicans like myself, we were, we were so angry because the Democrats would just hurl just insinuation and insult at one after the another. And, and Bush would never respond because he felt like it was beneath the office. And, and to a certain extent he was right. But unfortunately only one side of the story was ever being reported in the media And one side of the story was being told to the American people. And we're sitting here, you know, we have the facts, we understand the situation, but it was never, ever conveyed from the off from the white house because Bush would never fight back. The reason why people like me supported Donald Trump is because he goes after Democrats and he wrecks them politically speaking. He destroys them in politics and he bypasses the media. He attacks the media he, anybody who goes after him, he is relentless in firing back. And that is exactly the kind of person that we need. I support Donald Trump for, if no other reason, the fact that he drives Democrats absolutely just crazy. I like the fact that he lives rent-free in the back of their minds every single day and that they are put on the defensive in almost every single circumstance that involves the president. I love it. Because finally, the Democrats are getting a taste of their own medicine. And in this case, that's essentially what has to be done. The Democrat Party is not playing by the rules. They're not playing with civility. They are not operating in the arena of ideas. They are openly tolerating violence. They are openly tolerating lies like straight up, straight up falsehood in the media. We're not even to the, we don't even operate like we used to where Things were just sort of void of context. Now we are actually in a place where Democrats are literally telling complete fabricated lies and passing it off as truth. We are well beyond any level of deception that we've ever seen in the news media. We needed somebody on our side who was going to fight back. That's with respect to the Democrats. Finally, getting to the Republicans. The Republicans in Congress have been feckless, spineless cowards. Year after year, ever since 2010, 
those of us within the conservative movement have been sending more Republicans every single election to Washington to the point where up until this past election, the Republicans had more power than they have ever had in the last 100 years. That was unprecedented from historical standpoints. And yet we still can't get anything done. You got Mitch McConnell in the Senate. Oh, gotta have, gotta have 60 senators in order to get things passed. You know, we just gotta get past the filibuster. I mean, this is, this is outrageous. The Democrats managed to get more done in the minority than the Republicans do with a practical supermajority in terms of historical numbers. The Senate has almost always been very divided in terms of that 50-50 division. The fact that we now have 53 senators, like we're never going to get to 60. We're never going to get to 60. I don't think the Republicans have ever occupied 60 senatorial seats ever in the history of the United States, as far as I'm aware. We're not going to get to 60. But of course, I have a theory that Republicans in Congress actually enjoy being in the minority because they can pretend to be conservative, but they don't have to be responsible for any of the outcomes. And therefore, it's like this perfect arrangement where they can convince voters that, hey, we can repeal the Affordable Care Act 40 times in the House of Representatives, knowing that it would never pass the Senate or at the very least would always be vetoed by the president. And then when they finally have control of Congress and the White House, they never repeal the ACA. They completely fail to do it. Oh, you know, because we got to have pre-existing condition coverage, which essentially turns our private insurance uh, market into privatized welfare. So, you, you know, instances like that infuriated people like me, where the Republicans have been continuously given more and more power and authority, and they refuse to do things that, can, that, that you know, that basically fall within the conservative ideology, such as cutting government spending, cutting the size of government, reducing regulations, you know, in, you know, trying to protect individual liberty. They're not doing any of these things. Instead, we're spending way more money. We are reducing liberty, not expanding it. And these are not the, these are not the pillars of conservatism. Conservatism is about preserving the values and morals of the founding of the country, which namely involve small government and protection of individual liberty. Those are the main pillars. So we had to have a president that was going to essentially not tolerate the BS that was coming out of the Republicans in Congress either. We needed somebody who was going to stand up to them when it came to things like border security. Um, that being the, probably the main thing for the most part, unfortunately, Trump is a big spender. We know that we have seen some tax cuts and tax relief come through, which has been both. Uh, it's been kind of a mixed bag, but the bottom line is, is that if the president is, laser focused on something. He doesn't allow the Republicans in Congress to stop him. So I feel like it's really important to address the reasons why Trump is even in office and to understand that we can sort of do two things at the same time. We can attempt to defend the president from the level of facts and evidence, but we can also recognize the fact that we are, we did not elect Donald Trump because of who he was as a person. We did not elect Donald Trump because of some kind of a uh, esteemed character that he has. We elected him because he's a bully. We elected him because he's not a good guy. We elected him because he has teeth and he's not afraid to use them. And he drives the Democrats absolutely crazy. And right now that is all he needs to do. As long as he continues to take the fight to the Democrats personally, I don't care what he does. And the reason why I say that is because 
my, the entire goal should be this. We put whoever we need to put into office with the intention of pummeling the Democrats into pieces, politically speaking, until they cry uncle and they are ready to come back to the negotiating table and play by the rules. Because right now they're not playing by the rules. And we can't allow the kind of behavior that we saw during the Judge Kavanaugh hearings and confirmation. That's the kind of stuff that cannot be tolerated. That cannot be tolerated. With the case of Judge Kavanaugh, it, it, the, minute that, the minute that the Democrats and Senator Feinstein's office played political games with, with criminal accusations about a man who was up for office that threatened the power of the Democrats, it no longer was about Kavanaugh. Just like right now, it's no longer about Trump. At this point, from my standpoint, even if Judge Kavanaugh had a smoking gun, was standing over a dead body in the middle of Times Square in New York City in front of millions of people, he was getting confirmed to the Supreme Court. That's not a man that we want on the court. That's not a man that is principally sound from a conservative standpoint. But we could not allow the Democrats' behavior to be rewarded. Because if it was rewarded, it will be done again and again and again and again and again. The same exact thing is taking place right now with respect to the impeachment of Donald Trump and the investigations of Donald Trump. We cannot allow these, these specific behaviors to be rewarded by Donald Trump being defeated and thrown out of office. Because the next time a Republican president is elected, which will happen, the Democrats are going to do the exact same thing again and again and again. And as long as we continue to be 100% guided by our principles and put our principles up above survival and above winning, we are going to lose every single time. And this is a perspective that's really hard for me to have because I'm a principle, I'm a principle person. I vote for people based on whether or not they represent my principles. If they don't, I don't vote for them. But now I see a greater danger in Democrats having power. Because now we see what they do when they have power. They use it and they are corrupted by it. And then they use by any means necessary to continue to hold that power. The situation with Judge Kavanaugh was evident because they were losing a generation-long grip on the Supreme Court. That has long been a refuge for Democrats. They were able to bypass the will of the people, which I might add, all these cries about democracy from the Democrats, at least with respect to me, fall on deaf ears. I do not care to listen to the whining of Democrats about how the will of the people has been violated. There have been numerous instances where the will of the people has been not to go for a particular progressive agenda item. And then what happens? Then they go through the courts. They find some obscure federal judge to side with them. They place an injunction. They are able to seize massive amounts of power from areas of the government that actually have been established by the Constitution. And then they work it all the way up to the, to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court affirms the progressive ideological position. And now, we've, now we're stuck with it. No one voted for it. And it was a ruling by nine justices who were unelected and unrepresentative of the American people. That is hardly democracy, and that is very much not the will of the people. So if you happen to be a Democrat and you have said these sorts of things, as far as I'm concerned, you're, you're basically talking to a brick wall. Because until I actually see some evidence 
the Democrats actually care about democracy and care about the will of the people. I could care. I couldn't care less about such items with respect to the progressive ideology. You guys are absolute hypocrites, total 100%. So this is the job of the president. The job of the president is to take the fight to the Democrats, to keep them on the defensive and to essentially keep them at bay because mark my words, ladies and gentlemen, Someday, a Democrat president is going to be elected. It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time before they have some measure of control in Congress. When that happens, it's going to be bad. Because they squandered a tremendous opportunity in 2008 and 2009 when they had control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency. They couldn't get immigration reform done, and they barely got the Affordable Care Act through, and they had to significantly bend rules from a parliamentarian standpoint in order to get that done. It was a super, super shady thing. It might be something I can go into more detail in another podcast in case you've forgotten, but make, but make no mistake that when the Democrats are in power again, their base is even more radicalized than they were 10 years ago and make no mistake. I, 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 I'm sorry to say this, but it will be a sorry, sorry day for those of us who believe in individual Liberty. They will come down hard on guns. They will come down hard on taxes They will come down very hard on environmental regulations because environmental regulations and taxes are two major areas that they can control virtually everything in the country with the third pillar being healthcare. They are desperate for Medicare for all because if they are able to freeze out the private market, that too gets a significant amount of control over people because health, healthcare involves everything involves exercise, what you eat, where you live, all that stuff. All that stuff can be controlled and you can be frozen out of the system. Oh, you want to be a conservative? Oh, that's cool. Well, uh, we're just going to deny your uh, healthcare plan here and you're not going to be able to get healthcare anywhere. Hmm, That's a shame. If you don't think this can happen here, you need to wake up and you need to shave off this naiveness. It absolutely can. And it most likely will. I don't want to be all apocalyptic, but you got to understand these people are rabid with respect to their, their radicalism these days. When you got Antifa controlling the streets of Portland, Oregon, and the Democrats are just like, oh, well, I mean, I mean, did they deserve it? Did that, did that old man deserve to get pulled out of his car and assaulted and his property damage, his property damage? Like I digress, but ladies and gentlemen, just understand that when I go through this stuff, I'm not trying to make a case for Donald Trump as the man. My job is just to make sure that we are armed with the facts and that we do everything we can to defend him because in defending him, we defend ourselves. This is not a good guy. He's done some shady things. He surrounds himself with some shady characters. And I'm sure nothing, you know, that a lot of stuff has not been done above board. But that being said, it is our responsibility to defend him as best we can Because in defending him, we defend ourselves. So again, thank you very much for uh, for entertaining my little rant there. Um, And as as always, if you guys have any feedback about this particular podcast, you can always reach me at Facebook.com/slash/politicsband or uh, at politicsband on Twitter. And with that, let's go ahead and dive into some information. The campaign finance finance law violations. All right, let me see if I can unravel this as best I can. The assertion here is that the president committed multiple felonies because he paid Stormy Daniels $150,000 during the presidential campaign as hush money 
because they apparently had some kind of an affair back in 2006 when Donald Trump was president and Trump was worried that this could have an impact on his reputation. The important thing to understand here is that the the campaign finance law violation is this, that by paying the $150,000 to Stormy Daniels and not reporting it as a some type of a campaign donation, the president broke multiple FEC laws. So the notion is that the campaign derived a direct benefit from the silence of Miss Daniels and that by not exposing this affair, the campaign gained some kind of monetary advantage, which needed to be disclosed as part of the campaign financing and FEC paperwork. Interestingly enough, uh, we've had a similar case where this has taken place. And that was with John Edwards, which was a case in 2012 when John Edwards ran for president. So first, I'm going to go over to the Washington Examiner, where they talk a little bit about this case, where it says in 2011, Edwards faced Edwards faced similar charges for payments issued to his mistress by private donors during his failed presidential bid. He was acquitted on the basis that the payments were meant to conceal the affair from his wife for personal and reputational reasons, not from the public for political reasons. So what they're saying is, in this case, is there's a specific campaign uh, disclosure requirement that says if a uh, if a payment is made in a situation that would have happened anyway if the campaign had not been taking place, that it's not considered to be a part of the campaign and therefore not subjected to the campaign finance rules. I think we can all argue that Trump would have had a vested interest in keeping the affair away from the, from the knowledge of his wife potentially had it come out. But in this case, you know, there's a lot of missing pieces that we have because we don't have any testimony from Trump. And uh, all we have is the testimony from, from Ms. Daniels who was represented by Michael Avenatti, who is just this crackpot crazy attorney who inserted himself in the middle of the Kavanaugh hearing situation as far as I'm concerned, Mr. Avenatti, based on the clientele that he represents, has absolutely zero credibility in my eyes. Now, that's I'm not an attorney. I'm not involved, but that's my perspective. I think there are way more similarities between the Donald Trump case and the case of John Edwards. However, there is one piece that's being reported that I, some of these different Democrat publications are claiming is what separates the Trump case from the Edwards case. Before I go into those, understand what is taking place, first of all. And I, and I apologize for not laying this groundwork earlier. This is, this is a case that has been referred to the Southern District of New York's U.S. Attorney's Office. Bob Mueller's not investigating the campaign finance law violations, and the vast majority of the stuff that Michael Cohen has pled guilty to with respect, with the exception of maybe lying to federal investigators, has been to charges that are not associated with the campaign and not associated with Russian collusion. That's important to understand here. So anything that's not that's not tied to Russian collusion is farmed out to other U.S. attorneys' offices for investigation and potential prosecution. So the president cannot be indicted. Per the Department of Justice policy, the president cannot be indicted. And this is something else that Democrats are flirting with now that they actually understand that this is the way it is. For the longest time, they denied that this was even the case. 
The Department of Justice has a policy that they cannot indict a sitting president because in doing so, the president is the highest office of the land and the Department of Justice sits inside the executive branch and they serve underneath the president. So you can imagine a situation where the Department of Justice has the, has the power to level criminal charges against the president of the United States, a man who is elected democratically by the American vote through the electoral college process. So it would in effect make the prosecutors within the department of justice more powerful than the president of the United States himself. These people are not elected. They are not appointed. They are hired or they are appointed in the case of us attorneys, but you understand what I'm saying. So it's important to understand like this policy exists so that the president of the United States is not held under constant threat from the Department of Justice, and that in effect does not interfere with the ability for the White House to govern. It's a very, very important rule. It's a rule that has been, that basically I believe came into existence under Nixon, and it was reaffirmed under Bill Clinton because Bill Clinton also faced impeachment and investigation. It's important that this rule continue, even if this was a, a situation where there was a Democrat president who had committed a crime. It's important that we are not able to indict a sitting president. It would create a constitutional crisis. It would effectively make Bob Mueller the most powerful man in America who was unelected and unrepresentative of the American people. The president of the United States was elected by the American people, and therefore his position should be respected significantly more than that of a special prosecutor. So in the light of this, the Democrats now they understand that even if there is some aspect of Russian collusion that links directly to the president of the United States and there's some kind of criminal action that took place, they can't indict the man. So they're going to indict him after he gets out of office. And they're going to do that with respect to this campaign finance law violation. You've already got Democrat uh, politicians that have been on the news saying that they're looking at proposing legislation. Of course, it would never pass with Trump as president, they're looking at legislation that would essentially freeze the statute of limitations for crimes if they were committed by the president so they can prosecute him after he leaves office. Again, this is, this is not really about Trump. This is about Democrats laying the groundwork to make running for president as a Republican extremely dangerous and most likely extremely sacrificial. So if you want to run for president as a Republican, you can You'll just have your, your life destroyed, your family's life destroyed, the lives of all the people around you destroyed, and most likely you'll be put into prison for some obscure crime. It's not about the campaign finance law violations because I'm going to show you how we've had other people that have committed significantly more egregious violations of campaign finance law and not any, and no one with the exception of Dines Souza, have actually seen the inside of a jail cell. So the idea is they want to hold this over Donald Trump's head. They want to be able to disrupt the ability for the White House to govern effectively. And then assuming that Donald Trump is not reelected in 2020, they want to make it as painful as possible to send a message to the next Republican candidate. If you get elected to president, we as Democrats will destroy your life. So they are continuing to ratchet up the behavior so, you know, we've seen them spy on the Trump campaign using the American spy apparatus, and now they want to be able to put 
previous Republican presidents in prison simply because they served as a Republican and they were part of the wrong uh, presidential party, which is a lot of alliterated peas. So the aspect, so they cover this on the examiner where they say, what, what did Cohen in, or at least what led him to plead guilty rather than mount the same defense as John Edwards were the AMI's claims that Daniels and McDougal McDougal deals were intended to influence the election. This might be, this might actually hinder Trump's ability to make the same argument. Now, who is the the AMI? Uh, This is the American Media Incorporated, which is the publisher of the National Enquirer that enabled Cohen's payouts to former Trump filings, Stormy Daniels and Derek McDougal, asserting that its principal purpose in making the payment was to suppress the woman's story so as to prevent it from influencing the election. And this was uh, a piece of information that was released by the Southern District of New York. Uh, Here's a tweet where it says, SDNY announces a non-prosecution agreement with the parent company of the National Enquirer. Because, of course, AMI would be implicit in campaign finance law violations potentially as well. If they are the ones who facilitated the payments, and this is, of course, illegal in in its operation, then everyone along the way that was involved should also be prosecuted. So the SDNY is essentially saying that they agree not to prosecute the parent company of the National Enquirer in most likely in exchange for their testimony. Here it says the AMI admitted that it made $150,000 payment in concert with the candidate's presidential campaign. AMI admitted its purpose was to suppress the woman's story as to prevent it from influencing the election. Now, I don't necessarily know how they're going to prove this or what the burden of proof is with respect to this item, but you got to understand that none of this can actually, there's no prosecution that can take place with respect to Donald Trump until he's out of office or if he's impeached, which is very, very unlikely to result in a conviction. But be ready, folks. The Democrats are going to impeach the president. It's absolutely going to happen. So let's talk about some other campaign finance law violations. And um, it's un- again, it's important to understand that almost all of these result in fines. So here is a story from supermarketnews.com. Excuse me. And the title of this is GMA to fight largest campaign finance penalty in U.S. history. This is an article from November 4th of 2016. The Grocery Manufacturers Association has vowed to correct the injustice of being ordered to pay $18 million, the largest campaign finance penalty in U.S. history, for violating Washington State's campaign finance laws during its opposition of a ballot initiative related to a GMO disclosure. So the story here is that Washington State was going to force grocery uh, grocery markets to disclose on products whether or not they are they include GMO products. So there were a bunch of different companies that wanted to oppose the legislation, but they didn't want to advertise their names uh, out of privacy. So the Grocery Manufacturers Association basically made this large contribution. Uh, so what the initiative was called No on 522, a ballot initiative that would have required GMO labeling was voted down. But they just basically the GMA put their name on the donation to this group as a way of concealing all their donors, such as uh, Pepsi, Nestle and Coke, according to the attorney general's office. 
Uh, so the association contends that it was under impression that it was in compliance with the law. Uh, the actual amount given was was between $11 million to $14 million, and they were fined $18 million at the time of this publication. So you got to remember, the payout to Stormy Daniels, $150,000. With, with respect to campaign financing and the amount of money, I mean, the last, you know, Obama was the very first $1 billion campaign. So when you talk $150,000, it is, it's pennies. It's absolute pennies. Uh, as far as I know, nobody went to prison for this. So then we move on to the Obama campaign in 2008. This is from, it uh, looks like News Talk, 1130.iheartradio.com. This is an article posted uh, by Dan O'Donnell on August 22nd, 2018. He says, let's be clear, or well, the, well, the headline is the worst campaign finance law violation in history. It says, let's be clear about this and call it what it was, quite possibly the worst campaign finance violation in American history. A presidential campaign was illegally raking in tons of cash that it illicitly used to swing an election. Hmm, sound familiar? In short, the very crime that campaign finance laws were designed to stop. An audit from the Federal Election Commission determined that the campaign knowingly took money in excess of campaign contribution limits, accepting more than $1.3 million in contributions from supporters who had already given it the legal maximum amount of forty-six grand and then refusing to return the cash immediately after regulators found it. In addition, the campaign refused to disclose where it had received 1,300 large donations totaling approximately $1.9 million. $1.9 million, $150,000. Totally separate violations. Taken together, it was rather obvious, it was a rather obvious scheme to get around campaign finance laws, and funnel illegal money to a presidential campaign, yet it didn't result in criminal charges, plea deals, or calls for impeachment. The campaign merely paid $375,000 in a fine, which was one of the largest the FEC had ever issued, and then refunded the money. There was no outrage in the media, no claims of widespread criminal conspiracy, no calls for the president's indictment, and why not? Because this was President Obama's 2008 campaign. The circumstances were, of course, different, but the underlying principle is identical. An unlawful attempt to get around campaign finance laws to help a candidate get elected. Moreover, the scale of the illegal money was much greater in 2008 than it was in 2016, but the enforcement of laws was far less aggressive. It wouldn't have, to have, it wouldn't have anything to do with the target of that enforcement. Now, would it, of course? That's according to the author. So you can imagine the amount of influence that can be laid out with $1.9 million in a presidential campaign compared to $150,000 that was paid to a single individual. That's a lot of TV ads. It's a lot of internet advertising. That's a lot of time on camera for one point for nearly $2 million. But yet no one from the Obama campaign has been brought up on charges. No one was impeached. There's been no plea deals. Now that's the Obama campaign. The real one that I want to talk about is the Hillary Clinton campaign. This is from redstate.com on August 28, 2018. Hillary Clinton's campaign implicated an $84 million campaign finance scandal. You guys starting to, starting to get the point here? 
The attempt to turn the Stormy, Stormy Daniels unpleasantness into a campaign finance violation, which is a weak attempt as it turns out, is starting to come into focus as a new Federal Election Commission complaint filed by the Committee to Defend the President alleges the Hillary Victory Fund, HVF, was using state chapters as straw men to circumvent campaign donation limits and laundering the money back to her campaign. Dan Backer, the campaign finance attorney who filed the complaint, writes in the Investor Business Daily that the scheme puts the conviction of filmmaker Dinesh D'Souza, who was prosecuted for, quote, giving a handful of associates money they then contributed to a candidate of his preference, end quote, to shame. So Dinesh D'Souza engaged in essentially straw man uh, like campaign donating as well. He actually went to prison for eight months, whereas, uh, as you'll see, nobody has been Nobody has gone to prison for this for $84 million. HVF solicited six figure donations from major donors, including Calvin Klein and family guy creator, Seth McFarlane and routed them through the state parties and route to the Clinton campaign. Roughly $84 million may have been laundered in what might be the single largest campaign finance scandal in U S history. Here's what you can't do, which the Clinton machine appeared to do anyway, as the Supreme Court made clear in in, uh, McCutcheon versus the FEC, the JFC may not solicit or accept contributions to circumvent base limits through earmarks and straw men that are ultimately excessive. There are five separate prohibitions here. This is from the Investor Business Daily article. On top of that, six-figure donations either never actually passed through state party accounts or were never actually under state party control, which adds false FEC reporting by HVF, state parties, and the DNC to the laundry list. So you got to understand, the idea was that the HVF set up all these individual organizations in each state, and they were considered to be chapters. Now, if the money had actually been funneled through those chapters, you might have something. But unfortunately... As the Investor's Business Daily uh, article points out, the, the money never actually was under state party control and was never actually passed through those state party accounts. It went straight to the Clinton campaign, which adds false FEC reporting uh, from HVF state parties and the DNC, because, of course, they all claimed otherwise. So back to the article. Finally, as Donna Brazil and others admitted, the DNC placed the funds under the Clinton campaign's direct control a massive breach of campaign finance law that ties the conspiracy together. Democrat donors, knowing the funds would end up at the Clinton's campaign, wrote six-figure checks to influence the election 100 times larger than the amount allowed. HVF then bundled those mega gifts and on a single day reported transferring money to all parties or to all participating state parties, some of which would then show up on the FEC reports filed by the DNC is transferring the exact same dollar amount on the exact same day to the DNC, yet not all the state parties reported either receiving or transferring those sums. So they had all the transactions done on a single day, all the transactions were the same amount, and yet not all the state parties reported receiving or transferring those funds. A massive fraud. So back to the Red State article. It's getting to the point that as soon as one of the leaders of the progressive movement over the last 20 odd years in the country starts pointing a finger at a political opponent, accusing them of some scandal or potential legal activity. It's generally a good sign that the progressive leader may be engaged in the activity themselves. 
and people actually debate why no one trusts politicians or the media or the system. So over to the Daily Caller, just to add a little bit of extra context, uh, this article from August 30th, 2018, where it says, over a week has passed since Michael Cohen's plea deal and the left-leaning mainstream media is still beating their war drums. From the New York Times to the MSNBC, the liberal media remains fixated on President Trump's alleged $130,000 payment. I apologize for the the previous uh, error on that. The $130,000 payment to, to porn star Stormy Daniels, even though it came from personal finances and not campaign funds. Vogue went so far as to feature Daniels in a profile piece titled Stormy Daniels isn't backing down. CNN then proceeded to highlight the piece, describing it as a, quote, extraordinary story, end quote, that graces the pages of High Fashion's Bible. No what else is extraordinary? Of course, Hillary Clinton's well-documented $84 million campaign finance scandal which the liberal media simply refuses to cover. And that's right, $84 million, which was 647 times more money than is involved in the Daniels case, which amounts to an insignificant FEC reporting issue. Whereas it's likely that President Trump did not violate the campaign finance law in any way, his 2016 opponent is implicated in America's largest campaign finance scandal to date. Last year, the Committee to Defend the President filed a complaint with the FEC documenting an unprecedented, massive, national, multi-million dollar conspiracy carried out by the Clinton machine. The committee's 101-page complaint was built entirely on FEC reports filed by Democrats, memos authored by the Clinton campaign manager, Robbie Mook, and public statements from former Democratic National Committee chairwoman, Donna Brazile, among others. You got to understand, this is not some right-wing conspiracy this is not information that is produced by right-wing sources. This is all research and, and investigation done based on memos and filings from the DNC and the Clinton campaign. The Daily Caller says it's been over 250 days since the complaint was filed and counting. The Democratic Party establishment stands accused of steering $84 million in illegal straw man contributions to the Clinton campaign, an exponentially more sophisticated money laundering scheme than the one carried out by conservative commenter, a conservative commenter, Dinesh D'Souza, in 2012. D'Souza was sentenced to eight months in a community confinement center and five years of probation for a campaign finance violation that amounted to $20,000. Clinton's money laundering scheme is more than 4,000 times larger. In other words, the $84 million scheme amounts to the single largest campaign finance scandal in U.S. history, and yet the liberal media has deemed the scandal unworthy of its coverage, even though the committee's complaint has resulted in an ongoing federal investigation. Months have passed since that investigation was opened, and the likes of the New York Times, CNN, and MSNBC refused to cover it. Ditto for CBS, ABC, and NBC, only crickets. So the rest of the Daily Caller piece kind of goes into detail about some aspects of the investigation, but I think you all get the point that the president is facing a significantly larger onslaught by Democrats and the special counsel investigation with respect to campaign finance law violations, all while the Obama campaign gets away with essentially bringing in $1.9 million in illegal contributions. And of course, even after the regulators noticed it, they didn't give it back right away. 
They end up being fined $375,000 and giving the contributions back. But that, of course, was after Obama got elected. The damage was already done. The president was already in office. It was a done deal. You can't unring the bell. And now in the case of Hillary Clinton, we see how $84 million in straw man purchases were made with respect to campaign financing. And no one's gone to prison. No one's copped a plea deal. There's no active investigation that's revealed anything of any substance as far as I'm aware of. Now, while I understand that the Clinton Foundation is currently being investigated, we don't see Bob Mueller looking at how Hillary Clinton's investigation may have actually influenced the 2016 election. Now, do we? So it's important to understand the context that we're dealing with here and that if we're going to go down this road with President Trump and we're going to put him in prison for a campaign finance law violation, allegedly, then Hillary Clinton needs to do the rest of her natural life in prison as a result of this one scandal, as does the DNC, as does all of the individuals who ran these individual state chapters who didn't file their paperwork appropriately. It's a huge deal. $84 million can make a tremendous difference in an election. That's a ton of money. So to think that these sorts of instances are going uninvestigated and unpunished while the president is facing continual onslaughts every single day for a $130,000 payment to a woman to keep her mouth shut. It doesn't, it doesn't fit. It doesn't scale. It does not fit the, the previous uh, behavior that we have seen with respect to these violations. So when you see this sorts of thing in the news media, these are the kinds of facts that are very important that you can use to educate people on the real campaign finance law violations that are taking place and how we've virtually ignored them and how you can, the only explanation is it's not about the crime, it's about the person. It's about the fact that Donald Trump did it, it's about the fact that a Republican did it, and it's less about the fact of that it actually happened. So I hope that gives you all a little bit of a greater context and understanding about this particular issue. I hope this arms you with some information that you can use to counter any of the assertions that you see out on the internet or within your own social circles that the president is somehow a felon, when in fact, if he is a felon, then that makes Hillary Clinton and her campaign literally one of the largest felons in campaign finance history. So I hope you all enjoyed the podcast today and found this information useful and interesting. As always, you can contact me on social media if you have any feedback, positive or negative. I'll take both, even though I do prefer the positive comments. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you have a wonderful week. Thank you for spending your time here at the podcast with me, and we will talk to you in the next recording.